Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Today's episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a portfolio, a store, a blog, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move a reality. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CanadaLand. You'll get 10% off of your first purchase. Forget fake news. What about skewed news, torqued news, warped news, confused news? Most of us are now aware that there are shady operators posing as news orgs, but in reality, just making stuff up in order to get clicks, which translate penny by penny into big ad dollars. But those sites, they represent like really just a tiny percentage of the headlines that you will read in your newsfeed in any given day. You might not even see one of them. What you will find in abundance are headlines from a whole new breed of quasi-journalistic organizations that are throwing stories at you for a myriad of reasons. There are political interest groups posing as news sites, 
And there are apolitical media companies posing as partisans. There's hyperpartisan liberal news that is actually being published by a right-wing click farm. There are extreme right-wing news organizations that are actually data and dollar mining operations for political campaigns. And on top of hundreds of new sites, be it Faith Family America, Occupy Democrats, For America, Think Progress, Newsbusters, Now This, or hundreds more, there are well-established and reputable magazines and newspapers that are looking more and more like bleeding-edge outrage meme generators. (sighs) Who could even begin to make sense of it all? Well, BuzzFeed, naturally. Craig Silverman, the journalist who first reported on the fake news phenomenon at the end of last fall's U.S. election, has now released an extensive report on the next generation of partisan news sites. Along with his colleagues, Lam Tivo, Jeremy Singervine, and former Canada Land editor Jane Litvinenko, Craig has analyzed data from 667 different partisan news sites and their connected Facebook pages in an effort to explain how this new industry works and what it is doing to your understanding of politics and the world. And Craig Silverman joins me in a moment. Wait for it. Today's episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Bob Krawcheck, Tatiana Townsley, Leslie Rosenblood, Curtis Duggan, Rem Zalaya, Lynn Broughton, Lucas Habib, and Jeremy Petter. Jeremy, why did you decide to be awesome? I support Canada Land because I've been really disappointed with what our established news media companies have done to get news to me in a digital space. Uh, I really appreciate that Canada Land keeps trying new ways to deliver culture and commentary and that it holds those big players' feet to the fire. They deserve it, we deserve better, and I'm willing to pay for it. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month 
at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. And today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Look, everybody works differently creatively. Like when you have an idea and something is kind of bugging you, nagging, asking to be made, I find that the best thing to do is to just sort of start making it, figure out what it's called, start making a website. You don't have to make it live. You just start playing with it. And before you know it, it starts to generate more ideas about the thing. You've, you've planted your flag, you've laid claim to it, and you can start to see what it would look like out in the world. And that tells you whether or not to proceed with it or not. It is free to try that out with Squarespace. It is free to take that thing in your head and start converting it into a real website that you can choose whether or not you want to pay for and choose whether or not you want to unleash it upon the world. Squarespace makes it easy. Their templates are beautiful. You plug in your information and then you get 24-7 support, best-in-class support. You don't have to worry about anything. You get your own unique domain. So... Make your next move. Start your free trial at squarespace.com today. Enter the offer code CANADALAND to get 10% off of your first purchase. Again, that is squarespace.com. Enter the offer code CANADALAND. Finally, this episode of CANADALAND is brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks. Everything about FreshBooks is fresh. You get paid fresher, quicker. The money that you receive is fresher. The bills are crisp. I don't know if that's true. It doesn't really matter. I've never checked. The point is the site looks fresh. It is easy to use and it speeds up everything and it saves you a ton of time. Estimates, expenses, time tracking, the whole thing is easy, looks great when you do it on FreshBooks. And as I keep saying, what I have found as FreshBooks has evolved is that it has become mission control. It is where I find out what's coming in, who's late, how much revenue we're gonna have in the months ahead. It becomes an invaluable tool for running a freelance practice or a small business. Try this thing out, have a look. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. If you do decide to become a customer, you can try it out for 30 days. You don't have to give them the credit card. If you decide to become a customer, as over 5 million people around the world have decided to become a customer of this Toronto company, tell them that Canada Land sent you and you will be doing this show a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. I think like if somebody had told me 15 years ago when we were both, <laughs> we're both living in Montreal after university and if somebody had told me that Craig Silverman... That guy who lives on that little apartment in Androlet. Yes. The guy who like had a pretty good Jack Black circa Tenacious D impersonation at parties. <laughs> I enjoyed the parties. Craig, so the guy <laughs> at the Copa all the time. The guy's friends yes. called him Shecky. That guy. No, 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 no. You called me Shecky. No one else called me Shecky. I remember what I remember. They called me Scoop. That was my name at oh, the Copa. Oh, shit. Scoop. That's right. If you had told me that that guy would later come to have a major impact on global geopolitics. Wow. I would have said to you, well, it's a funny little world. Anything can happen, I guess. But I would have been surprised. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you're being generous now. But uh, listen, it's been a really weird year. It's been a crazy, crazy year. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's a compliment. I, I'm impressed. But you created a monster, right? I, I identified a monster. It's maybe more fair. Although you, you could argue that... Me helping popularize the term fake news, now that being adopted by the president has been a nightmare for the world, and, and that's that's maybe fair. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Putting a name on fake news in its purest form, in the Macedonian teenagers fabricating wildly with no basis in reality, purely for profit, and having impact as great as a major news organization, that's a killer scoop, and I, I commend you for it. 
that term, fake news, then being hijacked almost instantly and warped to become kind of the defining term of our time, right? And it's not just Trump weaponizing that term and using it to slag his enemies, including BuzzFeed. Yeah. Well, um, technically, he called us a failing pile of garbage, not actually fake news. So. Oh, he was CNN, your fake news, yeah. BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed is a failing. So I don't know if that's better or, you know, right. higher or lower than fake news. Than fake news. But fake news has now become a, a we have to deal with this before we talk about this recent story of yours. That, right. that fake news now means whatever you want it to mean when you're waging ideological yeah. war. It's used by the left. It's used by the right. It's used by Eddie Greenspawn dozens of times when he was making the case for why the news industry needs to be bailed out in Canada. And we don't even have a fake news problem in Canada. And yet he was, it's this boogeyman, fake news, fake news. Do you feel at all guilty or responsible? Or do you just feel like you're like, what I sense is that you're just wildly trying to reassert a cleaner definition of, of, of what fake news should be called. So people, I think, ha- in some ways have exaggerated, I feel, sort of my role in it. However, that's not to deny the fact that I do think that that a bunch of the reporting we did helped popularize the term and the concept of fake news. And yes, it has been taken and reappropriated and maligned and weaponized and all those things. It is used by the right and the left. I think actually the right have been more effective at co-opting it because their reaction, basically, Trump got elected people were trying to figure out how the hell did this happen? And I think some people, a lot of liberals, frankly, seized upon this idea of fake news saying, oh, it was fake news and they tricked all these dumb voters and now they voted for Trump and this is what happened. And that that is not a legitimate explanation of why Trump got elected. But that angered a lot of conservatives because that's a completely facile and incorrect uh, way to explain his election. And so then they said, oh, you're going to call us fake news? We're going to call you fake news. And and this this is where we're at. So, yes, I look at it and I don't like using the term as much anymore because I, th- I think there is no chance of reclaiming it. And yes, I have my own definition for it. But anytime I give that, I always preface it by saying, listen, I realize this matters zero at this point, but here's what I think it actually is. It's funny because, I mean, of course, those two words had been put together before your, your reporting. Sure. And yeah. the Daily Show used to call, you know, where you're, where you're America's favorite fake news source. Yeah. But in this context, in the context of, and, th- and this is what I think legitimately scares the hell out of people, the idea that not only like, okay, everyone's always felt news is biased, you know, news is a little, it's influenced by this way or that way, but the idea that what you're reading and lo- looks like news, feels like news, is shared as news, is taken as news, mm-hmm. is just completely fraudulent. I, I think that was a bombshell yeah. that started with your revelation and then and then spread out and became weaponized and became, and it, and it is, it's hard now to tell the easy excuse that Trump won because of fake news, right. the actual influence of those Macedonian stories versus the influence now of the term itself, mm-hmm. fake news, and, and right. the power that has in the discourse. Yeah. It seems like it's almost overshadowed the original thing. Yeah, I think it, I think it has overshadowed it by now. And if you look at it, it's it's been very strategic the way it's being used right now. So, for example, if you look at any story that Breitbart writes about CNN or other kind of mainstream places that they label fake news, they put the term fake news in the headline. And their style is fake news, or I think recently they've been saying very fake news, <laughs> colon, whatever it is. Yeah. And it's not just it's not just a stylistic thing. What that actually does is it creates kind of a Google bomb. So 
if you are constantly publishing stories about CNN and you are constantly putting the term fake news in the top of it, when people go to Google to search the term fake news, your stories may start to go up higher. And if lots of websites are doing that, it actually can affect search results. So I think there is a strategic approach to not only kind of reclaiming the term, but to actually making sure that when people go searching to figure out what the hell is going on with it, they may get this interpretation of fake news. One of the impacts of this has also been a bit of a boon to traditional journalism in that you'll see the New York Times and others saying there's fake news and then there's us. Yeah. And you need us now more than ever. And we see the Trump bump that subscriptions get in New York Times and uh, Mm -hmm. Washington Post and other papers that are deemed there's not much out there you can really trust. But in an era of fake news, you need us. And that's a sales strategy. It's one that we'll probably employ yeah. in our crowdfunding attempts. I mean, it, it, it happens to be true. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and in a sense, it's what you're now doing. You are now the fake news guy in that you have made it a beat out of verification, falsification, studying the proliferation of these you know, search engine optimization driven, clickbait driven, mm-hmm. and all the shades in between because your most recent study, which you're here to talk about today, you're very careful not to call this a study of fake news. It's a study, right. you've got this new designation. Well, I actually, I wouldn't say it's all that new. It's we're trying to look at partisan media. In fact, the earliest newspapers were partisan publications. Yeah. Um, they were aligned with a specific point of view and oftentimes actually aligned very specifically with the party. And they existed to push the party line. And if you look at early newspapers in the US um, and er, you know after it became an actual country, I mean, the language and the way they were going after the other side was really, really over the top. And so so this is this has a history in politics. This is the birth of journalism. This yeah. is, of, uh, at least in American context, but even before that, yeah. this is pamphleteering, yellow journalism. Yeah. This is everybody had their sides and there was a time when there were dozens of publications. That's right. And that was a key thing that you would have in, in big cities and even some smaller markets, you would have multiple publications. And there, you know, there would be your your Democrat publication, your Republican publication, what have you. And there would be different shades. And what happened over time with the business model that, that a lot of newspapers consolidated and you maybe had two in your city or whatever, then there was there was less of a chance for kind of a, a, a variety of them to be aligned with different parties and groups. And and even more, what happened, especially in the 20th century, is that advertisers didn't really want to be next to very partisan news content, which is still true today. They'd rather much be, you know, this it's true with BuzzFeed. They'd rather be doing their their advertising with our groups that do no news than, than with news. They'd right? rather be next to a fun quiz than something that half the people out there hate and half love. Absolutely. That's it. And so what happened in the 20th century for newspapers is that is that the brand sort of said, you know, we'd like sort of a safe environment for our content. So can you try to be down the middle with your news content? Can you also put your opinion stuff into place? And obviously that wasn't the only reason that model evolved, but it's also a reason why lifestyle sections and other things came. So- Service journalism. And, the, and like you say, the consolidation. Now, that being said, and why this, this, this whole conversation of what you're trying to put your finger on is so hard to do, this classification problem is yes. so hard that even in that era, then people still think of it as the platonic ideal. Like that's what news is supposed to be as objective, fair, doesn't take a side. Even at the height of that, you would still have like two papers in any major market, at least. Mm-hmm. One would be sort of center left, one would be sort of center right. There was always a flavor of partisanship. There was, you know, yeah. especially, and it was mostly supposed to manifest in the editorial page. But, and this is a thing I think conservatives have criticized for a long time is they felt that, well, actually, if you looked at the makeup of the newsrooms, people making the news decisions tended to be a little more liberal. Yeah. And so what what happened really, especially with, with um, talk radio and then with cable news in the US, that gave birth to the ability to 
have very partisan media again, um, smaller operations, ones that had clear ideological division. And so, so when we talk about partisan media, there is a new strain in the online world, which is you know very Facebook driven and and kind of clickbaity and rage inducing. And but there's also a long historical line going back to talk radio, going back to the earliest newspapers, going back to yeah. all that. And we tried to put all of those together because we didn't want to only just look at the new version because we actually found it really hard to say here's what makes a hyper partisan site compared to a traditional partisan site because you're trying to do data journalism but data journalism requires editorial decisions about who gets in that category so yeah what i mean it seems to me that what this was and you can correct me if i'm wrong you're trying to make sense of something that is actually very new which is that we've seen a very rapid explosion of hyper partisan sites they're not necessarily just uh, Macedonian teenagers soliciting clicks for dollars. Some of them actually come from people who have an ideological basis. They, they are mm-hmm. partisan warriors yeah. or they do have some connection to the truth. They wouldn't go so wildly. Right. So try, it's trying to kind of like look at this new category just to throw some names people might be familiar with like Occupy Democrats. Right. Uh, what else? You know, you could put Breitbart in this as well. Sure. Occupy Democrats, uh, Breitbart, um, you know, uh, IJR is a conservative one, Western Journalism, Conservative Tribune. Uh, Then there's, you know, tons of liberal Facebook pages like Being Liberal and Liberal America and uh, the other 98% Addicting Info. So there's this whole group starting about three or four years ago for the earliest ones that were really, really, in a lot of ways, they started almost as activist groups. In some cases, like Occupy Democrats was really very much related to the Occupy movement. And it's run by people who are very active in democratic politics and causes. Um, But the universe has expanded greatly. And so what we, we ended up identifying our total data set was 667 websites, but not all 667. Yeah. And we didn't get all of them. Uh, How many of those are new? Well, that's that's a good question. So we included in our in our our methodology was basically it has to be an online property that either through its own declaration or through a clear editorial bent has a partisan point of view. And and we're not saying that that's a bad thing. We just say that's the kind of sites we want to look at. And so we gathered 667, and and this includes like longtime you know conservative things, like you know pajamas media or newsbusters, like early kind of blogs in that era. But they've evolved to become kind of like these new. In some ways. And there's also things like, you know, the Weekly Standard, which has a website. That's a traditional conservative publication, all the way up to your Breitbarts and your conservative tribunes and all that. And so what we found when we looked at the dates that these these websites had been registered, which isn't exactly the moment they launched, but they couldn't have existed before that. We found that of the 667, almost 200 of them had actually been launched or, or at least registered just in 2016. Uh-huh. So that election is a huge event where tons of people flow into this market, mostly on the right, but a bit on the left. And if we expand it and we go back to early 2015 into early 2017, almost half of all those sites in our data set were only registered during that period. Okay. So when you look at the at the charts we have, like there is this big upswing as we get into 2016. You call it a gold rush. And this is consistent with what I think a lot of people listening will have experienced is that all of a sudden all of these new brands were feeding news into their Facebook newsfeed. You would so, you'd suddenly see yeah. all these things that looked kind of like a new site. And I don't know that all of them are all that hidden that they're partisan. Right. A lot of them are very, like, very overt about it. And then, you know, I'm not criticizing them for being partisan. But a right? new business yeah. model popped up and became uh, lucrative enough to fuel this proliferation. Mm-hmm. Can you briefly tell me, like, how that business works? Like, I, I think everybody has like a, a vague conception of like, okay, clicks equal dollars. But how does this actually work if you start a website 
Yeah. So the, there's two really key pieces in the business part of this. Um, one of them is Facebook, which is the biggest single driver of traffic to English language websites in the world. You get more traffic overall from Facebook than from Google now. So that for news websites, it's a big focus across the board. The second piece of it is um, what's called programmatic advertising. So you go to a web page and you see you know, those little display ads in a box or whatever, um, your typical kind of banner ad. And in a lot of cases, those are automatically placed. You know, As you, in that split second, and you are loading that page, whatever cookies and data has been built of your profile online, there are robots trying to target you with the, the best possible ad in that split second as that page loads for you. And that's something that people hear a lot, but to explain that, like an advertiser has basically said, I want males 18 to 35 years old who have an income of this amount, who, you know, maybe we found that our product sells better with people with a conservative leaning. You basically right. buy, you don't buy an ad on a website, you buy a demographic profile. Mm-hmm. And then the machine goes and finds you those eyeballs. That's right. And you don't even know where those eyeballs are landing a lot of the time, but but, no. but it, it's going to go find you hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And then those sites get paid through an affiliate program. That's it. Yeah. And, and this is also, that's also how the fake news stuff makes its money is this disintermediation between the brands spending millions or hundreds of millions or billions on advertising having actually no idea where their ads end up in the digital sphere. There are lots that actually do direct placements on specific places for big buys, but a lot of times they're putting a good portion of their budget into this programmatic automated stuff. Yeah. And they have no clue what website their stuff ends up on. And that takes us to these like sleeping giant campaigns where, where activists are actually going after the money and yes. saying, if we want to take down Breitbart, Let's take down their advertisers. Let's target their advertisers. And some of the advertisers will say, we had no idea. Yes, absolutely. A lot of them have no idea. And and not to go too far afield, but there's also another problem in this ecosystem, aside from people having no idea where their, their ads are showing up, is that there's a huge amount of fraud in this ecosystem. So people are running automated fake traffic, uh, uh, you know, machine-driven traffic that will flood a website, load lots of ads, and then they'll collect the money from it. And, and the brands don't know that they thought they were getting those mails from 18 to 35. In fact, it was robots yeah. automatically viewing the ads and and defrauding them of their money. So it, it's it's a really messy ecosystem. It's pretty wild. I guess the brands just look back at like whether or not they're actually selling stuff and they, they just assume there's a certain amount of fraud, but I guess this advertising works. You hope that they know what they're doing. They, they don't know what they're doing, to be honest. And yeah. I think they actually just woke up to it. And so this is a huge conversation taking place in that world. But it's it's enabled these business models. So when you have Facebook as a as a huge fire hose of traffic. And when you have the ability to get ads on basically any website, if you can find a way to generate traffic from Facebook and get lots of it to your website, people clicking on your content from Facebook, then you're going to make money from advertising. And what's been clear over the last, say, two years or so is that really intensely divisive and partisan content gets a lot of engagement on Facebook. It really gets people riled up. They click on it. They react to it. They comment on it. Algorithms feed it to people. It drives clicks. You can make good money. So it's a business opportunity. What kind of money? What's good money? So on on the individual level, we managed to obtain some some records from Addicting Info, which is these guys run a network of liberal oriented websites. And back in 2014, we got a, we obtained some data about their payout to their writers because a lot of writers uh, get paid by a small piece of the advertising on that particular piece of content. That's a really interesting thing, though, because you're saying to the writer, you're going to get paid if your story does well. Yeah. It is, so you've yeah. now created an incentive to make the most shareable viral story and, and you don't know what other incentives well, but it's got to be true. 
that that might not be quite a yeah i mean uh, listen we've jane lifanenko and i have have interviewed you know lots and lots of people on the conservative and liberal side and they pretty much all acknowledge that these incentives are corrupting people are what really works is the most divisive the, the further you walk up to the line of falsehood you tend to be rewarded on facebook for that yeah um, you feed into people's bias they react strongly to it now, buzzfeed i think along with Gawker and some of the other news sites, you know, 10 years ago were, were uh, I don't know if I got my timeline right, but, but this new breed of, of uh, online news, uh, which you work for one of them, they were criticized by traditional media yeah. for connecting journalists with their stats. And, and I think in some cases, even rewarding people. Whenever you visit these offices, there's a leaderboard of which story is performing better. Right. It is well known that if your stories don't do well, you're not going to be there necessarily, or, or it's a good thing to have stories that are widely shared, but there's still a commitment to, to reporting accurate stories. And so you're balancing in in the writer. We almost see like this is the logical conclusion right. of that strain of like, if this is just a pure clicks for dollars deal, then let's just get, let's, let's set our writers loose. And, and you, and if somebody's just has no claim on doing news journalism, they're just running a business, right? then they're going to do stories like this. So, so, yeah. so what, what's the most a writer got paid? for like one story. So the, the most we found, and we by no means do we have all of the data from all the websites or even all from Addicting Info, but we did find from some of the data we had for 2014 that one writer made more than $20,000 in one month from one story in 2014. That is that is incredible. I mean, you, you every know. freelance writer listening to this right now is going, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, what, what was the, what's, what's the word count on that? I mean, the, yeah. So it was actually a story yeah, what was the story? Yes. So, I mean, this is one of the things to note about these websites is a lot of their content is very partisan. If it's a liberal site, it's basically right now, it's all about how awful Trump is. And if it's a conservative site, it's, you know, how terrible liberals are, how great Trump is. But they also mix in other classic kind of viral stories. And in this case, it was actually a story about a really kind pit bull. And so it was an animal post. It was about um, a pit bull being really sweet and loving and taking care of, I think, um, a kitten or something like that. So I yeah. think it, it may have actually been pit bulls and kittens, which is just, I mean, that's magic. Wow. And so- And so how with Trump, just pit bulls and, and kittens should well, be the new- You know, I mean, this is the, one of the lessons of, of online in general is, you know, what are people passionate about? And the pit bull community, pro pit bull owners, I mean, they are extremely passionate and extremely active online. You write a story that is perceived as being anti-pit bull and you are going to hear, hear from they will, them. They will seize upon you yeah. as if they were a- uh, Okay, so- <laughs> You're talking about these businesses that are running like a network of liberal sites, but you actually found at least a handful of companies, they they so don't give a damn about the politics that they're uh, inciting outrage about, that they're running both liberal and conservative sites, and they'll actually repurpose the same story as a liberal story and a conservative story. I, I'm, I'm looking at these, uh, these the, this comparison you have. It's the same picture. It's Kellyanne Conway looking creepy and weird. And the site Liberal Society's headline is, White House finally gives Kellyanne Conway the boot. Are you glad? And then the site Conservative 101 has the headline, White House just gave Conway the boot. Prepare to be infuriated. <laughs> and the same company put out both of those stories on two different sites. That's it. We found five individuals or companies that have properties on the liberal and conservative side. And, you, you know, when you talk to the folks about this, in a lot of cases, the conservative side is older and more established because conservatives have felt kind of left out of the liberal mainstream media for a long time. So they've been around longer building up this world. But a lot of these folks, you know, who started in the conservative world, they just sort of, they were realized they were running a business and they looked at the liberal side and they said, well, I have an opportunity to kind of hedge my bets. If the conservative reach on Facebook starts to tank, I'll have my liberal site. And, and, and has it? 
Uh, well, I wouldn't say it's tanked, but one of the one of the trends. I, I, I'll just, I'll yeah. just like the context. Just like my understanding is, this is all kind of rooted. I mean, it goes back a long time, but like when conservatives and Republicans were out of power, this all started and this tone started on talk radio. It's like you start yeah. in the fringes when you're the underdog. And, the, and then you've got the, you, that, that purpose. You've got a mission. You're a warrior. You're not trying to get news. You're trying to get weaponized. Yeah. And the Rush Limbaugh ditto heads and that rose up. And now that manifested in this massive online swell for Trump. But then he wins. Like it's hard yeah. to stay as erect yeah. after you've won. And now- Why are you putting Rush Limbaugh and erect in like the same sentence? Why are you doing that, that to people? But now who feels mobilized? The resistance, right? Yeah, so that's right. Is that is that reflected in what your study revealed? Like are the clicks shifting to where the people are most outraged and mobilized? This was one of the big questions we had kind of going into this research project. One of our hypotheses was that with the election of Trump, liberal sites would see more engagement and stronger engagement on Facebook because they have a defined enemy who is in power. And so that was the hypothesis going into it. And one of the ways we looked at that was we took uh, week by week from we basically we downloaded about 4 million Facebook posts from over 450 pages. And then we took the top 100 posts week for week from early 2015 until the end of March 2016. Top 100 posts every week and the Facebook engagement. And when you look at this chart, the conservative pages were kicking butt in early 2015. They were bigger, they were stronger, but then as the election gets going, and actually as of May of 2016, when it was clear Trump was gonna be the nominee, the liberal ones start going neck and neck. And in fact, they start beating conservatives week on week sometimes. But since Trump's election, yeah, to sum it up, um, they are they are consistently beating out, their top content is consistently beating out the conservative pages. Uh-huh. Hit Trump has been very good for the liberal hyperpartisan side. They've got an enemy, They've got someone in power. They've got a guy who says crazy and false things all the time. It's been a gift to them, 100%. Let us not clutch our pearls over this. Like, like, is this just, what's the harm? Right. I mean, I know what the harm is about a headline that's just totally false, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What is the harm in hyperpartisan news? Yeah. It feels almost like, like sentimental to me the way, like, there was, you know, this concern raised a decade or two ago, the internet, we're all just going to be in our own little bubbles talking to each other, echo chambers. But I'll admit, like, I feel more so than I feel outrage, I feel like challenged on a, on a basic level as to like mm. what news is for. Right. Right. If we all are pretending that like, why do people read the news to get informed, to educate themselves, to know what's going on? I, I kind of feel like, well, this is revealed to me. It's not really true. Like the pleasure of confirmation bias, of having yeah. your biases confirmed. It's a lot more work to read a story. If I read a story today, there's a headline that's like, well, actually Trump's done a lot of good. Right. I was like, this is going to be work. I've got to read this very closely <laughs> yeah. and entertain this concept. And, you know, it, it's against what I think is probably true, but I want to be, you know, I, I'll do it. But it's not the same pleasure that I got out of like, say, reading the Scaramucci flame out. Right. Like that confirmed everything that I think about this pack of orangutans and just what a circus it is. Mm-hmm. And it was this glee that the world is just as fucked up and that administration is just as They hilarious. are what you thought they were. They are, they are what I th- and, then, <laughs> right. and then I can share it with people who are like mine, like, oh my God, look at these baboons. Yes. Right? That is pure pleasure. And, and, yeah. and then, you know, the pleasure of that confirmation bias, it also serves another purpose. And you quote Occupy Democrats publisher... Uh, Rafael Riviero saying, we want to give people the ammunition to engage in meme warfare, mm-hmm. right? So so here, 
the purpose of the publisher is like, we're not trying to inform you. We're trying to let you fight fire with fire. They fight with memes. They fight. A story like that is something that you use as a weapon. Yeah. And we need to fight the way that they fight. And that's fun too. Mm-hmm. Everyone's engaged in this fun battle. And it's not to say that that's better or worse than being informed. I think, you know, maybe it's better. A, a better pursuit would be the work of getting informed. Right. But what's wrong? Mm-hmm. What's wrong with reading hyperpartisan news and enjoying its pleasures and using it and weaponizing it in this way? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to say that it's wrong or that people need to stop this. And we're certainly not saying all these sites need to be shut down. Like we're not advocating censorship on any level. But you you hit upon a core thing here, which is that this is about affirmation and ammunition, not about actual information. And so people are being fed this stuff because it makes them feel good. And it's stuff that they can then take and send to friends and send to people who view things differently than they do. And so it's serving a different purpose. But one of the things when we compare, you know, the Facebook engagement of a lot of these pages to the Facebook engagement of, say, CNN, The Washington Post, The New York Times, these pages kick their ass. And these are operations that are run by, you know, sometimes a few people, a handful of people. Their writers are paid either, you know, a very small amount per article or a percentage of their ad revenue. So the amount of money and resources going into those big places that are trying to break stories and the amount of money going into these ones, completely different in terms of investment. Yeah. And then the reach on Facebook is on that basis a little bit out of whack. Um, so the concern I have about it is that if this is what people are getting and this is what people are consuming, uh, do we get a more divided society? Are we unable to find the common ground? I don't want everybody to think the same, but I'd like people to actually have a reasonable, rational, fact-based argument and figure out solutions that might actually work. And I don't know that this stuff is going to help us with that. And if you look at data in the United States... Republicans and Democrats are more polarized and more divided than they have been in the last, I think, at least like 20 or 30 yeah. years. Bit of a chicken and egg thing. Right. It's also interesting, like, I credit myself with the ability to stay informed, read legitimate news sources, know what's going on, and then enjoy a, a juicy Scaramucci headline right. as like, this is a trivial fun thing. Mm-hmm. I'll enjoy this. It's, it's, it's more fun than the other stuff. I can do both. But the other side can't. The other side are a bunch of ill-informed idiots, ignoramuses who just read the crazy Breitbart stuff, don't know the true facts. Are you saying this seriously or are you saying you're putting on a role right now of someone... I think I'm about half serious. I think that I think that everybody thinks that the other guy is the That's true. that the other side. Yes. Like, like I have to admit that I engage in this stuff as well. I can't pretend that I'm just you know sure. reading the Economist and and I don't I don't even look at these headlines you know. But I feel like I know what they are. Uh-huh. I put them in a different category. I enjoy them, but I don't really trust them the same way. And they're fun. So I feel like I can kind of walk that line, hmm. but I think my casual uh, bias is that the other side can't. And when you see that the, that the other side is sharing something wildly that looks like it's really, really, really torqued, I think, wow, these people have, like they actually believe this and they don't know the facts. I mean, the problem with that is, and and I'm assuming when you're talking and you say the other side, you're talking about the conservative side, the right side, right? And well, so I, I guess so. I, and, and and you know, when it comes to Trump, yeah, right. But I mean, the, the problem with that is that I think one of the other things Trump has done is shown that that kind of tendency can happen on the left as well. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, Louise Mensch, who who was a conservative MP and ran a conservative website, which was recently shut down, is now turned into a fervent anti-Trumper. And she goes around calling everybody a Russian agent and makes shit up. And people on the left are treating her like a quality news source. There are websites like the Palmer Report that have emerged on the left that completely make insane claims all the time about Trump, about people around Trump, and people eat it up. 
Now, they so, eat it up in that they click on it, or they, they eat it up in that they share it, because that might, those, or, they, or they eat it up in that they believe it and they act on it. I mean, this is a difficult thing, is to know the connection between consumption and belief. Like, is it of possible media, that right? everyone's smarter than we give everyone credit for? I think that would be that would not be the Occam's razor that I would go with, <laughs> unfortunately. And I'm not. And it's not about intelligence. I think one of the bigger contexts to this is that we're all experiencing and consuming information in radically different ways than has ever happened in the history of, of humanity. Getting information as opposed to choosing a specific radio station and listening to that, and choosing a specific channel and getting news from it. We have algorithms mediating what information we are seeing. And yes, it's coming from friends and family and things that we've liked and clicked on. But there is stuff coming at us from a wide variety of sources that all kind of looks the same. And we have to make sense of it. And this isn't about intelligence. I think there's actually on a basic cognitive level, we are not used to getting this mix of information like this. And people aren't necessarily taking a step back to think about that and consume that way. And you and I are bad examples because like we live our lives around this stuff. And I don't think I consume information as other people. Again, not an intelligence thing. I just think I may be more aware of what is causing me to see these certain things at this moment. I have noticed like intelligent people who don't work in news, intelligent, thoughtful people that I know casually in like dinnertime conversation sharing stuff that I'm like, didn't you read that that's not true? Yeah. And it's like, no, they don't spend all day looking at this stuff. That's they, right. they caught the story. They didn't catch the falsification. They, they didn't catch the fact check. Yeah, that, which which that, is a huge problem that um, the false info tends to be way more viral because it's designed to appeal to you. That's why these hyperpartisan sites do well. They spend all of their thought process on crafting the headline, mm-hmm. which is very common in, in online content, right? It's all about the headline and what people will see on Facebook. And so in a lot of cases, like the Macedonians, they would just plagiarize the text but it was all about coming up with the headline that was going to kick ass. Yeah, on they Facebook. weren't originally even doing political stuff, right? Like they were trying right. some other stuff. And the, 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 our attention went to politics, our outrage went to politics. So then they started to A B test and design yeah. the most click. I was actually recently in Macedonia, in fact. And did you meet some of these kids? So a lot of them have no interest in talking to me. I've fucked up their business. Did they show you their new dirt bikes? Uh, no, I did not get to see that. I talked to one guy. Uh, we met at a, a very nice hotel. Uh, but yeah, I'm as a, as the fixer, who's a very good investigative journalist in Macedonia, who was working with me, said she's like, um, Craig, in Macedonia, you're famous, and I'm like. But you don't really mean famous. You mean infamous, right? And she's like, yes. Uh, so when she was actually trying to set up interviews for me, she would consciously say, not say, this is Craig Silverman right. from BuzzFeed. And there was also, a, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but there was a, a legit sort of safety thing of like, is it okay for me to go into this small town where everybody knows each other? Yeah. And I'm I'm not viewed in the most positive way because I got some people kicked out of Google AdSense, which hurt their finances. Their sites got shut down. They lost their Facebook pages. There are people who are pissed off. And if they knocked you off in Macedonia. What headlines could we even believe? Oh my about? God. Who would tell the tale? This, this is it. Um, but no, I, I had a great experience there. And, and you know, to get to the root of how that whole happened, there's a guy in Macedonia who actually trains people in what he calls internet marketing. And he teaches them how to see what keywords are trending on Google. And he teaches them how to start a website and how to craft stuff for Facebook. And so to your point, yes, they were running health websites, muscle car websites, websites about horses. It's all about finding a niche. And presidential politics was clearly a place there was a lot of traffic and attention and they followed it. Okay. So with that in mind, to everybody who's like listening to this and is just horrified at where we're moving, if this is where we get our information and how we organize ourselves and act politically, it might just be the flavor of the month. I mean, even by your own reporting, the biggest story, the $20,000 story was a pit bull story, right? In Canada, whatever Ed Greenspan says, we don't have a fake news problem because we don't have enough people to click. 
Yeah. Right? You, you're saying it's big business. Okay, it's kind of big business. It's not big business like mass media is big business. Like probably these websites would max out at like a million dollars a year. There are larger networks, le- kind of legit businesses that are being built out of this. Like there's a guy in the story named Patrick Brown, whose dad is actually one of the creators of the Willie Horton ad that helps sink oh, the caucus. Oh, right. The, the George Bush ad. Uh, and yeah. so he runs a whole network of sites, recently did two acquisitions, is building a company, is running it very professionally. So he's going to be earning millions in revenue. But yeah. we, you know, somebody who's got like one, one or two websites and one or two big Facebook pages, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars a month. So you're right. It's not like billions going on. Yeah. Here. And if we're talking about this, this model of say anything to get the clicks, like some of these businesses are becoming other things and they're getting direct revenue from their supporters or they're selling t-shirts. But if, if we're just talking about clicks for dollars, you also report that this has taken a big downturn since 2014. Yeah. What you can get for a viral story is getting lower and lower. And you really need to hit big to get serious money. Yeah. Won't it just move on to like sports or Kim Kardashian? And like, like we're in a moment now where people are right. afraid, they're hyperpartisan. It, it only touches certain topics. It might just be a flash in the pan. It's, it's absolutely possible that let's say Trump does a full first term and isn't reelected. It's possible that there will be a significant decline in this stuff with Trump gone. However, one of the changes that's already happening and that I think means that there will be at least a certain amount of this around for a while. So one is people like Patrick Brown who are actually like building large sustainable companies who are doing this stuff. And they're a little on the more responsible player side mm-hmm. of, of what they're doing. It's still hyperpartisan, but, you know, they're not making crap up. And then the other piece of it is actually the Macedonians, which is that because you earn less money from basic display ads today, for an American, for a Canadian, for somebody in the UK, the financial opportunity isn't that great for our standard of living here. However, in Macedonia, the average income is $400 US a month. Uh So when your parents are earning $400 US a month, and you can earn easily 10 times that in a a month. So what's happening, I think, is we're going to see the overseas element take on more and more. It's not just in Macedonia. We find tons of spammers and people like this in Kosovo, in Vietnam. And so I think what's going to happen is a large overseas market targeting North Americans and English language speaking people with not only hyperpartisan political stuff, but other clickbaity things. And that is going to continue to grow. And so that just creates more confusion and more growth in this in the information sphere. Dude, this is such black mirror sci-fi shit. The idea that like that the developing world becomes this misinformation source because the pennies or the dimes or, you know, the dollars that that generates is worth 10 times more there. Yes. And so they become, I mean, th- that was the, the the most evocative thing about the story to begin with is Macedonian teenagers influencing right. the American election. I mean, that's... And and look, I mean, this is this is what goes on in the global economy. We, we used to go to places like Vietnam and get cheap things made, cheap labor, and, and get the product back in North America. Now what's being produced over there is cheap information exported cheap information, to inf- us. Because it was the exact flip before. Like North America dictated culture for the world and right. everybody was just consuming what what Hollywood and what New York made and that they would have this major cultural impact is uh, it's kind of staggering. Okay, well, let's let's assume for a second that this actually is a really big problem and that and that maybe it even gets worse. Of course, there can be really big impacts on every level. People acting on bad information but also like you say, just the divisiveness, the anger of this, we've already seen it turn into violence. None of it would be possible without Facebook. Right. Like that is... It's a game changer. Absolutely. That's at the center of this. And Mm -hmm. the idea that it's just this, well, what can you do? It's all amorphous. It's all happening all around the world. No, it all happens via one 
company. And it's because this company has this news feed, which is open to anyone that levels the playing field entirely. It's a newsstand where everybody can kind of look the same and anybody can have an image and a headline and make money from it. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. It is all about your image and your headline on Facebook because that's what distinguishes you. Most people don't look below those things to see what website it yeah. comes from. So putting aside a conversation that, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to have in, in different contexts about, you know, the freedom of speech issue. This is a private company. They're one place that is exerting mm -hmm. an incredible amount of influence. If we conclude as a society and both sides, I could see getting to the same conclusion. This is bad. Right. This is just bad. Yeah. Right. This People is on both helping. sides that we talk to complain about Facebook. The conservative side complain more. They feel that they do get censored. They feel that there is a bias among Facebook employees, but also in terms of how Facebook builds its algorithms to decide what stuff people see. Well, they all they all are completely vulnerable to the black box of how Facebook builds its algorithm. Yeah. And they all feel like this company, this company has an incredible amount of power over their businesses. But much more importantly, this company has, has a big impact on our lives. And mm -hmm. if unprecedented in human history. Absolutely. So there, there are 2 billion people that log in at least once every month. And most of those people do it more than that. Nothing has existed like that in the world before. So Facebook is at the core of this. And, you know, it, it, let's say Pizzagate actually had resulted in a mass shooting or, you know, something awful feels kind of an inevitability that some of this will have some real world repercussion. If there's a political will, I mean, what level of responsibility does Facebook take for this? What are right. they doing? What could they do? And is that where we should be taking this this debate? Yeah, there's there's a lot of pressure on Facebook. And and initially, if people remember, in the immediate aftermath of the election, people were really concerned about the fact that the completely fake stuff was getting more engagement than your average, you know, viral article from the New York Times or whatever. And that's some research that we did. And so initially, Mark Zuckerberg was like, come on, this is absurd to suggest that this stuff is having a huge impact. It's a small amount of the total content on Facebook. So their first response was to be dismissive. And the pushback onto that was huge. So they've been doing Actually, I would say a lot. It doesn't mean there, there isn't a hell of a lot more to do, but Facebook has a responsibility up until the end of last year. It did not acknowledge that responsibility. Mm -hmm. It said, we're a tech company. We're a platform. We don't have a role in this. We're a dumb pipe. You're yeah. the content. We're the platform. And so now they change their language and they say, you know, we're not a publisher. We're not purely a platform. We're a new kind of platform and we do have responsibility. So this has forced them to change. They've got a few initiatives going on. The one that matters the most is that they are constantly doing tweaks to the algorithm, the set of you know programming instructions that chooses what content is shown to people and what content isn't. And that is what controls the newsfeed. And so they have done a lot of updates to that. They've done updates, for example, if you run a website, and you know I found examples of this where people literally just have a headline on their website, and then the rest of the page is ads. It's called an ad farm. You know They get a really clickable headline. People click through and realize, oh, God, I been had, Facebook will now punish your site. You won't get as much reach yeah. if they detect that. It's it's the same problem you have in doing your study. It's it's a categorization effort, right? Yeah. So you can kind of like first cleave off your very, very distinct categories, right? Mm -hmm. uh, an ad farm, click farm, whatever. Easy, easy. Get yes. rid of that. 100% false, easy. Yeah. Macedonian that's, that's teenagers, so, you know, like, so you figure out some way that you can falsify it, falsify or verify information. Although the teens are tougher tricky. though. The teens are tougher because there there actually are Macedonians running sites that are kind of legit hyper-partisan well, sites. Well, yeah, you, you, you pivot to that. If you see that the purely fake headline gets booted, then you're like, okay, let's do what the partisan press does. Just base it on something true, but yes. give it a big spin. Then if Facebook were to in turn, it's a cat and mouse thing. If Facebook were to in turn start kicking that off, well, then how do you distinguish that from your Breitbart's 
I mean, you yeah. know, people are going to find fault with your study because you, you list Fox News as one of these hyperpartisan news sources. You don't well, list no, no. CNN. Hold on. We list, we don't use the term hyperpartisan in terms of how we describe the data set. The headline says partisan. Partisan. I partisan. Okay. And this, this is, imp- it's, but it's really important because initially we actually wanted to just study hyperpartisan, but we sat there and we said, well, how do we, how do we identify what's hyperpartisan but versus partisan? But it is partisan? the hyper, see, I, I, I could see why Fox News is on there and CNN isn't, right. even though I will admit that CNN is partisan, but it's a level of degree. I would consider right. Fox News hyperpartisan. CNN is mildly partisan and more is a bit more is a, a yeah. business than a, a, than has any kind of uh, water for either side. So you've made a distinction there. Like, yes, it's, it's a, that's where this whole thing ultimately is going to rest. Is yeah, is, it's humans making decisions about stuff. That's right. And editorial that, decisions, right? Yeah, no, that's that's it. And like we are, we say, and and at the bottom of our story, we say we know there are probably sites that we missed that should be in here. We know there are probably some sites we included that people argue shouldn't be in here. But in the totality of it, we feel that we've well represented this world to make a bunch of conclusions. Where the hyperpartisan thing, why we decided to call it partisan is because we actually wanted to look at the early partisan ones like Weekly Standard or other things like that and compare them to the newer ones. Yeah. And we couldn't do that if we only looked at the newer ones. Well, and that's the other thing is, is that you're trying to come up with some kind of scientific method- methodology or, or quasi-scientific methodology. So the definition applies to everyone. Yeah. But you're tweaking the definition with a, with an objective of including some and not including others. No, right? we, we created a definition to make it broadly inclusive. That's what I would say is that the definition. Was, but, it, but it excluded a CNN and it included a Fox Excluded News. a CNN, yes. And and that was the idea is, you know, for example, Fox acknowledges that its commentary content is conservative yeah. in the evenings. And they acknowledge that and that's stated. And so like one piece of criteria for inclusion was, does the organization or the website itself say, hey, we are a conservative this or we are a liberal that. Which some of them are it. opaque about and some of them are transparent about. So some of them, exactly. Some would say that and that was an easy inclusion. Then the other one was where it comes down to human decision, where we have to evaluate and see if they are in line with the other ones. Yeah. And there's no question that there is legit criticism about what was included or not included. And and that's totally fair. And that's that's why we released all the data and we explained our methodology so that people can criticize it in an informed way, without a doubt. And so that that's why I specifically want to make sure people understand that it's we're not saying every one of these 667 sites is these newer partisan types because they're not. You know, the editor of Mother Jones talked to me on Twitter saying, I don't think we belong with all these other ones. Sure. And her argument was, listen, we are a high quality publication doing like national magazine award winning stuff. And I'm like, you're right. But we have a whole section in our story saying the quality level between these is not the thing that we use to determine inclusion. Right. We determined, you know, Mother Jones is is a left leaning magazine and there's there's not a criticism. So is The Economist a right leaning magazine, right? You could argue in, on its economic... But not explicitly so as Mother Jones is explicitly left-leaning. And that's why for us, you know, the only way to do this and do it responsibly is you have to be very transparent about w- which sites you included, why you included them, put all of that up to scrutiny. And so people can look at it and say, you know what? I don't like their inclusion and I'm not going to read and believe this. I you didn't know? read that part. That was longer than the actual article. Uh, no, it wasn't. The article is super crazy long. Like we thought we were going to do three or four stories. Yeah. And then, and then you know, my editors were sort of like, no, nah, let's just make this big crazy honking thing uh and so it's true the yeah the methodology stuff uh it's there at the bottom but most people don't put it in and so the the truth is like we know there will be debate about who's in and who's out it's totally fair and people can look at it and make a decision for themselves and if they feel like we didn't do a good job creating criteria then they should not read it and that's that's totally fine you know but they have to be able to make an informed decision so we gave them everything we possibly could to do that 
it, it is impossible to do a perfect version of what you're trying to do. That's right. And it's an impossible thing to broaden this out to the analogy of just basically who do I trust? What do I read? What's true and what isn't? I mean, ultimately, mm. this is always going to come down to building your credibility by getting it right enough and, and hoping yeah. that people are smart enough to figure out what's what. Yeah. I mean, look, this where this relates to Facebook is that people talk about the algorithms of Facebook like they're these, you know, robots and this kind of thing. But they're programmed by humans and the humans determine, you know, what are the criteria that the algorithms go out and enforce. And so even in this environment where Facebook operates at an insanely large scale, where so much of it is automated, where there's algorithms filtering, at the end of the day, there are engineers and product managers on the newsfeed team who are making decisions about things. And they make it based on a huge amount of data, a huge amount of surveys. They're constantly surveying people, but they still have to make decisions just like we had to make decisions about what's in and out in our study. And so- Just like newspaper editors once made decisions about what goes on the front page. Yeah. This is the new- Gatekeeper. Yeah. And it's arguably far more powerful. And this is one of the, the tricky things with Facebook is that arguably for the amount of influence they have, they don't I don't think they have enough people. Like their their VP of newsfeed, Adam Osseri, who runs it, I saw him speak in April in Italy and he said, you know, for the size of company we are in terms of our impact and revenue, we actually have a relatively small amount of employees. And I'm like, yes, you do. Maybe that's an issue. Yeah. And so recently they announced uh, they hired 3,000 people to help with their content review. So these are folks like if you report something as hate speech or you report something as graphic violence, it has to go through a review that will in some cases be automated and then also hit humans. And I think one of their problems is that they've tried to solve everything with automation because that scales and for their platform, it makes more sense. They need a little more human labor and human oversight. Well, they're totally opposed to that. The culture of Silicon Valley is is that doesn't scale and you want yeah. to find, you know, machine learning is, is the answer. And maybe this is a good place to leave this because I think that this really does hint at the future of journalism. It's not just a person power question of putting a few thousand more people on it, though, of course, that's necessary. But right. I, th- I think it's about a new discipline in journalism of, of considering those people editors yeah. and creating best practices and methodologies and including that in, into kind of our profession and mm-hmm. our rubric or some middle ground between engin- yeah. engineering. Well, p- part of it is also, I mean, for me, my job, I think a lot about how we bring the account level of accountability that journalists think about for public companies and public institutions we have to bring that level of accountability journalism to the platforms like Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, an urgent, urgent thing that and and newsrooms have to get up to speed on how these algorithms and things work to be able to report on it accurately. I mean, we still don't know what ads were micro-targeted at people in the United States in that election and what effect those had because you can run an ad on Facebook in a way that it's only public to the people you've specifically targeted with it. People have built careers studying political ads. Now that money is moving to Facebook and most of those ads are, are targeted in what's called a dark post. So we have no fucking idea what they look like. Yeah. And the only layer of accountability on those ads then is the these mostly automated process that Facebook uses to determine whether those ads are acceptable or not. And so what happens is when you're running a political campaign and you test hundreds or thousands of ads every day or every week, you see what gets rejected. You see what gets accepted. You move your bar you start right to up to the, the line. Algorithm. Yeah. And that's what the clickbait people and the hyperpartisan sites do. They go right up to the line of what's going to get them banned. And the incentives are all towards that. So if we don't have accountability on what kind of ads are getting targeted, on how these algorithms are affecting what people are seeing, I mean, this stuff is just going to keep running and nobody's going to know about it. You know, no one's going to be able to see what's actually going on because we only see the small sliver in our universe. 
So you're calling for Facebook to open the books on their algorithm? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I just... Good luck. No, I mean, that's not going to happen. But what is happening, I just came back from Chicago talking to like the, the biggest collection of, of journalism and mass communication academics, uh, the annual convention for them. And, and they have been agitating to get data out of Facebook for a long time. Journalists have been agitating to get data out of Facebook. So a tangible thing is not... They're not going to give us the code for their algorithms, but they should give us better access to actually study this stuff. Because in order for us to get those 4 million posts we analyzed, we had to run computers for days at a time, scraping posts from all these Facebook pages. We had to do a lot of stuff to kind of get around and find ways to get this data. And it shouldn't be that hard. And Facebook needs to open up and collaborate more to help solve these genuinely difficult, but really important problems. That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Can I ask you to like us on Facebook? Are you afraid of Facebook after this episode? Like us on Facebook and you will get our news stories in the mix with all that other junk on your Facebook newsfeed. Or you can just go to our website, canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site, the reason why we do not care whether we get clicks or not, is at patreon.com slash canadaland. The producer of Canadaland is Russell Gregg. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. I will be back with Shortcuts on Thursday. If you like what we do, please support us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.